Hey everyone, it's Beverly Hallberg. Welcome to a special pop-up episode of She Thinks, your favorite podcast from the Independent Women's Forum where we talk with women and sometimes men about the policy issues that impact you and the people you care about most. Enjoy. Hey there, this is Jennifer Braceres, Director of Independent Women's Law Center. Today, we are talking about sexual assault on campus, and in particular, forthcoming regulations from the Department of Education that establish for the first time how colleges and universities should process such claims. My guest today is Samantha Harris, Vice President for Procedural Advocacy at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education otherwise known as FIRE. FIRE, which is based in Philadelphia, works to protect the rights of individual students and faculty members at America's colleges and universities, particularly with respect to the issues of freedom of speech, freedom of association, and due process. At FIRE, Samantha advises students, faculty, and administrators on issues of free speech and due process and she also lectures regularly on student rights at conferences around the country. I'm thrilled to have her with us today. Thanks, Sam, for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. So I'm excited to talk to you today because we are hearing a lot these days about the problem of sexual assault on campus and about these new regulations that the department is um, allegedly going to drop any day. So I thought we'd start um, our conversation by sort of defining the scope of the problem. And I want to ask you, is there a rape crisis on campus, as the media would have us believe? I, I actually, I have two daughters in college. Should I be worried? Yeah, I mean, this, I also have three daughters, and they are not yet in college. But I think you know, it's important to, to understand, you know, a lot of, particularly the previous administration, um, but a lot of people still, you know, throw around this statistic of one in five. You know, one in five uh, college women is going to be the victim of a sexual assault. And the thing is that the surveys that arrive in those numbers, uh, you know, ask students about a wide variety of behaviors. You know, a large number of the people who answered questions that ended up with them grouped in that victim category were not people who believed themselves to be victims of sexual misconduct. In fact, a lot of them were people who answered no to the question, have you been a victim of sexual misconduct? So, you know, what a lot of those surveys did was they asked about certain behaviors. You know, have you ever been touched, you know, when you didn't want to be, or have you had sex when you didn't want to have sex? And if people answered yes to those questions, then they were classified as victims. Now, that's not to say that sexual assault is not a problem on college campuses, uh, but you know, the idea that 20% of college women are being raped, I think, just defies sort of everyone understanding. If I believe or if you believe that, that your child had a 20% chance of being a victim of rape, uh, you know, on a college campus, no one would send their children to college. You know, we'd be deploying the National Guard. So I think we have to, right. you know, acknowledge that there's a real problem. But I think that in, you know, escalating it to that degree, we, we sort of tipped over into this moral panic that has led to, uh, you know, the, the eradication of a lot of really important rights, you know, sort of a loss of perspective on how we need to handle this. So, so what do you think 
explains sort of the climate of fear on campus that, um, you know, you're one in four young women are, are likely to be raped. I mean, I, I know you talk about the survey data that, that you know, is sort of misleading, but, but what do you think explains the feeling of students themselves that this is a big problem and, some, you know, that colleges are a dangerous place? Well, I think that, you know, we have, uh, you know, people in power on college campuses have redefined, uh, you know, sexual misconduct, and, and they talk about sexual consent in a way that really does bring a lot of people under this victim umbrella. And, you know, I, on a personal level, I'm not sure that that's good for anyone. Uh, you know, I often wonder what my own college experience would have been like if the people who I looked up to, you know, my RAs and, and you know, the administrators had been saying, you know, you've been, oh, you know, you, you were drunk, you were just, you, oh, you've been a victim. You know, I don't know that that really, uh, you know, helps people in the way that people currently seem to think that it does. Um, you know, like, I, I think that, you know, when we look at all of this, you know, these claims that are being brought, you know, what I see is that the overwhelming majority of them are brought in good faith. You know, sometimes people talk a lot about oh, false accusations, but that's not, you know, my experience. I read a tremendous number of these legal complaints and, and things like that. And I see that, that the overwhelming majority of them are brought in good faith, but a lot of them involve conduct, you know, to people who have been drinking heavily, uh, you know, ambiguous conduct that I think has been defined a certain way on campus, um, but that doesn't really comport with, you know, the legal understanding of consent or necessarily with how we should be treating these things. That's a very good point, because I read somewhere that um, Brown University actually defines any intoxicated sex as assault, um, which, which raises the question for me, if two people are drunk and have sex, which one is the victim? Well, and that's very interesting, because what we've been seeing in court, so, you know, a lot of these uh, cases where students have been expelled for sexual misconduct without, you know, what they believe to be a fair process, a lot of students have ended up suing their universities. And there are a lot of different types of claims they bring, but one of the common claims is actually a Title IX claim um, saying that the university's disciplinary process itself and the way the university adjudicated a claim of sexual misconduct discriminated on the basis of sex, you know, in this case against the male student. Um, and one type of Title IX claim is what we call selective enforcement, right, which is to say that the university enforces its policies differently depending on the sex of the person. And these selective enforcement claims we've been seeing used increasingly in cases where both parties have been drinking heavily and where the – now, just to back up for a second and be clear, if you've been drinking heavily and you sexually assault somebody, your intoxication in no way excuses you from having committed a sexual assault. What we are talking about is cases where the claim arises not from a claim of force, but from a claim that the other party was simply too drunk to, to provide valid consent, right? So a lot of these cases right. arise where you have two people, they've been drinking heavily, and one person will say, you know, afterwards in the clear light of day, well, you know what, I didn't know what I was doing, I was too drunk to consent. Um, and so in those cases, in increasing numbers, we have been seeing the other party, typically the male student, say, well, wait a minute, I was also too drunk to consent. So how come you are prosecuting me and not her? Uh, and in an increasing number of cases, we've seen courts letting those selective enforcement claims move forward on those grounds. Right. I believe there was one um, 
involving Amherst College where the Title IX claim was allowed to go forward, but then the parties settled after after that ruling. So we don't yeah. we don't know what would have happened. But it is an interesting point. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about this because when I was in college, um, you know, I actually do know somebody who was a victim of sexual assault, not in the in the sense that um, we're talking about, but this was actually a situation where somebody came into her unlocked room at night and wearing a ski mask, which is quite terrifying, um, and and molested her. And luckily, uh, this person was chased down the hall by by the roommates and the roommate's boyfriend who were there, and were awake in another room. And so the person was caught and. Um, you know, they were able to go to the administration. Well, the administration really did nothing about it because this person was a legacy whose, you know, parents had donated to the school, yada, yada. Um, but the case did proceed in criminal court um, and and was resolved there. Um, my point is that, you know, not so long ago, colleges really didn't take some claims of, of sexual assault seriously, Right. And now the pendulum seems to have swung in the opposite direction. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that you hit on something when you when you said that part of the reason, you know, you asked before, you know, how did we get to this, this place of fear on campuses? And I think that, you know, around 2009, 2010, um, you know, activists started to bring to the public's attention the fact that, you know, too often universities were covering up cases of sexual assault or sweeping it under the rug, particularly, as you say, if the student involved was a high-profile athlete or a legacy, um, you know, and that is shameful. Um, and so in light of all of that attention, that's when the Department of Education and the Office for Civil Rights under President Obama um, decided to become more aggressive about enforcing Title IX on campuses. And just to be clear, Title IX prevents sex, sex discrimination on college campuses. But over the years, a series of court decisions and administrative regulations have in, you know, established that sexual harassment and assault can be a form of sex discrimination um, because if you are being systemically harassed on campus, even if it's by another student, and you tell the school about it and they do nothing, you know, the effect on you it may be discriminatory. If you can't get your education because you're continually reporting to the school that you're being harassed sexually and they do nothing about it, what courts and the government have held is that that is a form of sex discrimination prohibited by Title IX. So that's why, just in case anybody's not clear on it, because I'm so sort of steeped in this stuff that I'll sometimes just talk about it without kind of backing up, and that's why we are talking about sexual harassment and sexual assault in the context of Title IX, which is a federal law requiring schools as a condition of receiving federal funds to prevent sex discrimination uh, in institutions of, well, not only higher education, but K-12. Here, though, we're talking primarily about uh, institutions of higher education. So anyway, right, so you know, we I'm have this situation. You... Sorry. So I was just going to say I'm glad you raised that because some people would say, well, look, we're talking about sexual assault, uh, sexual assault. That's a crime. Why don't we just leave that to the criminal justice system? And the answer is exactly what you said, that, that federal law, Title IX, um, as it's been interpreted, requires colleges and universities to address these issues. And 
And also in the, sort of in the case of the example I, I raised earlier, you know, it's, it's not just a criminal matter. There are other factors, right? Sometimes students just don't want to have to see the person on campus. So while things are pending in the criminal justice system, or even if there's not a case brought in the criminal justice system, they might require, for example, that they're not in the same classes or that they, the housing assignments are changed. And so, so right. colleges have obligations outside of the criminal law. Correct. Right. Um, and so, you know, in 2011, the Department of Education, which is responsible for administering Title IX on campuses, um, began to take a much more aggressive approach um, to investigating schools for alleged Title IX violations, to um, addressing the way schools need to handle um, sexual misconduct claims. And, you know, one of the things they did in this Dear Colleague letter that they issued in April 2011 um, was to direct schools to use what we call the preponderance of the evidence standard when adjudicating sexual assault claims, so that just means more likely than not. Um, they also required schools, if they offered an appeal, to offer a dual right of appeal. So you have a situation on most campuses now where if, you know, the respondent can appeal from a guilty finding, the complainant can also appeal from a not guilty finding. So a number of the lawsuits actually stem from instances where someone was found not responsible and the complainant appealed and then the student was later found responsible. Uh, so that was something introduced in 2011. And, and the Department of Education also discouraged uh, schools from allowing the parties to cross-examine one another. Um, so, you know, you had this overcorrection, essentially, where there was this perception that schools were uh, not doing enough about sexual misconduct. But now, uh, or at least, you know, from 2011 to 2017, there was this intense pressure on schools, you know, at the risk of losing their federal funding to be more aggressive about it. And I think for a lot of schools, you know, they, t they sort of took a shortcut from, well, being aggressive means finding more people responsible. So we're just going to take these steps that make it easier to find people responsible, whether that was getting rid of a hearing, you know, not allowing the parties enough time to review the evidence, uh, not giving parties enough notice. And, you know, one of the problems here is that I think a lot of people look at this as a zero-sum game where it's, it's sort of complainants' rights and respondents' rights. But what, what I see when I look at these cases is that universities genuinely botch these cases in ways that harm both parties. I mean, you read complaints by victims of the way schools handle their cases that are just unconscionable. And you read uh, claims by accused students of the way universities handled their claims in ways that are just unconscionable. So, so um, give, us, so an think, give you know, us an example, sorry. just to sort of put a human face on it, of of cases that you've read about or been involved in uh, where where the accuser was treated unfairly, and then uh, another example of where the student who was accused was treated unfairly. Well, there was an interesting case, uh, I believe it was at the University of Kentucky, where an accuser actually brought a claim because so she, she brought a claim of sexual misconduct and the university, and this is actually a very interesting one because it shows you also how these due process rights are necessary to protect both the victims and the accused. So um, this student brought a claim of sexual misconduct. Uh, there was a hearing. For some reason, either in the first hearing, either she didn't attend or the accused student uh, couldn't attend and they held it without him. He was found responsible, right? But then he appealed and said, well, wait a minute, you know, you denied me my due process rights. I didn't get a chance to testify or she wasn't at the hearing. 
So the university said, you're right, we need to have another hearing. So they had another hearing. And then at the second hearing, basically there were three hearings, each of which were so riddled with procedural errors that the accused student appealed and it got kicked back down for another hearing. So by the time this thing was headed into its fourth hearing, the woman filed a lawsuit and said, listen, you know, forcing me to relive this four times because you can't hold a hearing, you know, that affords this person his procedural rights. You know, you are forcing me to relive this and re-traumatizing me again and again and again. And a court held that, yeah, the university had just horribly bungled this. Um, and then, of course, you know, you have a lot of, you know, if you look at the cases at Baylor and things like that, I mean, you know, there are a lot of cases that just sort of involve a systemic, you know, allege at least a systemic effort on the part of schools to sort of overlook misconduct by athletes and things like that. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I think the news is, is pretty rife with those stories. But what we see every day is accused students coming to us and saying, hey, you know, I've been, I've been called in for a meeting. You know, all they told me is that I'm alleged to have committed some kind of misconduct. I don't know what they want to meet with me about. You know, students sort of going into these things blind, representing themselves. Often the university's got a lawyer, but the student is in there representing themselves. You know, I just I spoke to a student the other day who, you know, the university called him in to meet about something didn't give him any details, and didn't tell him he was entitled to an advisor. You know, so he just went in there blind, basically. Uh, and wow. this happens all the time. Wow, that's really disturbing. And, and what did they say in their defense, sort of these universities, about why they wouldn't at least give the person a heads up about what the allegation is? I mean, that just seems so basic. Well, universities' typical response when we say, well, why aren't you giving students more due process protections is they'll say, well, you know, campus discipline is really an educational process. You know, it's not punitive. It's not a court of law. It's just educational. But if you talk to any students or their families who've been found responsible on campus for sexual misconduct, the idea that it's educational just, you know, blows apart. I mean, you know, these – and listen, if you actually commit sexual misconduct on campus – the consequences should be serious, but when you look at what happens to these students' lives, it really underscores the need for a fair process. I mean, these students can't get into other schools. They lose job offers. Uh, you know, they suffer from depression, anxiety. You know, we hear a lot about suicide attempts. You know, there's a group called FACE. It stands for Families Advocating for Campus Equality. It was a group founded by the mothers of some students who were found responsible for sexual misconduct uh, without a fair process. Um, and, you know, their stories, they, they uh, have some testimony that they gave in opposition to a bill um, in California that related to campus sexual misconduct. And the stories are just heartbreaking. So, you know, the idea that this is nothing more than an educational process and so you don't need these procedural protections just falls away as soon as you, you hear what the actual impact on these students' lives is. Right, right. So there's two other things I really want to make sure I get a chance to talk to you about. One of them is um, an article that you wrote recently, a law review article that sort of chronicles um, the case law on this. And I'm hoping that you could just tell us a little bit about the legal trends and, and you know, where courts are coming down on these cases brought by, by students who say they were wrongfully accused. Yeah, it's a really interesting area of the law because you know, for a long time, it's been established that students in campus proceedings, at least at public universities, 
have due process rights. But the, the sort of contours of those rights were not very well fleshed out. And, and what's happened since 2011 is that more than 500 accused students have filed suit against their universities, alleging denials of fair process, you know, due process at public universities, um, sex discrimination, breach of contract at private universities. And courts have really had to start taking a closer look at campus judicial processes. Because, you know, back when campuses were primarily adjudicating things like plagiarism, the traditional posture of courts was very hands-off. You know, this is really within school's wheelhouse to handle, and it's not our place to second guess. But now that you have schools essentially operating these parallel criminal justice systems, courts have begun to recognize that they need to take a closer look at this. And so you've had, you know, in the due process context on public university campuses, the contours of due process really being more fleshed out and courts looking at the details of what that means. You know, does it mean you have to have a hearing? Does it mean that there needs to be a right to cross-examination? And in the, in the Title IX sex discrimination context, uh, courts have really been looking at, well, you know, when a university holds a disciplinary proceeding that really seems rigged against one party, you know, is that sex discrimination? Um, and the court decisions really, you know, they do vary. It's very, they tend to be very fact-specific. And we even have some, some splits among the circuits evolving about, you know, cross-examination and, and other things like that. But generally, the trend has really been that, you know, courts, you know, in comparison to what they were doing 30, 40, 50 years ago, are really looking more closely at campus judicial systems, and they're not just sort of taking their, that traditional hands-off approach. And have these students been successful? What is the success um, rate, would you say, of, of, of cases that sue their of students who sue their universities? Well, that's difficult to say. You know, when it comes to the legal decisions and whether they go down in favor of the university or in favor of the student, I would say it's, it's close to 50-50. Um, but what we see is that a very large number of these cases settle. And while, while we don't know the terms of these settlements because they're largely confidential, generally speaking, particularly if the settlement comes after the university loses a motion to dismiss, which is typically what happens. You know, if, if a university loses a motion to dismiss, they can either proceed on to the next stage of litigation or they can settle. And what we see is that a very large number of these cases that survive motions to dismiss do settle. Um, and, you know, given the fact that they settle after the university has suffered a setback, uh, you know, I think it's reasonable to assume that the settlement, uh, you know, gives the accused student at least some of the relief that they were that they were looking for. One thing I think is interesting is that even though there are so many cases being brought and even though uh, schools are receiving some adverse determinations and certainly settling cases out of court, they don't seem to be changing their policies. In other words, they seem to just regard these settlements as um, you know, nuisance value settlements that, you know, we'll just pay to make this go away, but we're not going to change the underlying policies that led us to be sued in the first place. Is that, is that correct? Um, by and large, yes. I mean, there have been some instances, for example, in, in Michigan, you know, the Sixth Circuit uh, held that public universities have to offer a live hearing with cross-examination. So, Public, public universities in the Sixth Circuit after that decision did have to change their policies. But, you know, keep in mind that universities are getting litigation from both sides. I mean, there are also still a large number of suits by, uh, you know, 
complainants alleging that universities mm-hmm. have mishandled their cases. So, you know, it's, it's very interesting that the case uh, in 1999, Davis v. Monroe County Board of Education, that first established a private cause of action, um, meaning that, you know, students can actually get damages against their universe from their university um, for violating Title IX. Um, you know, in the dissent in that case, Justice Kennedy predicted a flood of litigation. He said there's going to be, you know, mm-hmm. a flood of litigation from both sides. You're going to have people saying that the school, you know, has not, has been deliberately indifferent to their claims of harassment. And then on the other side, you're going to have people claiming that the school's efforts to address it violated their due process rights. And when you read that dissent now, more than 20 years later, you feel like he was looking into a crystal ball because that's exactly mm-hmm. what happened. So, you know, universities really are getting squeezed from both sides. Uh, and, you know, it may be that their calculation is still, you know, both in terms of the, the you know, publicity and the financial that, you know, these accused student cases are, are you know, less financially and, and costly and less costly in terms of negative publicity than lawsuits by accusers. You know, I don't know exactly what's going through their minds, but, uh, you know, we do know that they're reluctant to change their policies. I suspect that they are going to fight tooth and nail when these regs come out. Um, not to have to adopt more of these procedural protections. So, uh, you know, it'll be Well, that is a per- perfect segue into the, the last thing I want to ask you about, which are these regulations. And maybe you could just give a bit of background on <clears throat> what, the, what, is, what the goal of the regulations is and, and, and what they are expected to say. Yeah. So when the Department of Education issued its Dear Colleague letter in 2011, that was not a formal regulation. Um, that was something that the department sort of couched as mere guidance. Um, but in fact, it was treated by most schools as having the force of law because it was backed up by the threat of losing federal funds. Um, and it was really that dear colleague letter and the aggressive enforcement that followed that ushered in this era of reduced due process protection. And so what the Department of Education under the Trump administration did was to take a look at this and say, okay, you know, something needs to be done. We have this this sort of unofficial sub-regulatory guidance out there. It's, it's led to all of these consequences. We need to actually take a look at what's happening on campus and go through a formal rulemaking process and issue regulations around how universities need to handle Title IX adjudications. So that's what they did. Uh, in the fall of 2018, they issued a notice of proposed rulemaking um, and put the, the regulations up for notice and comment. Now, that alone is a big difference from the Dear Colleague letter, which was issued without any notice and comment, so no input from you know, all of the different stakeholders, whereas these proposed regulations have had more than 130,000 comments on them that the department has been reviewing and, and integrating into their thought processes for the past year. Um, so the proposed rules uh, you know, had a lot of guidance as to the need for due process in this setting. You know, the proposed regulations, and I keep saying proposed because you know, we don't know exactly what the final rule will look like until it comes out because they've been receiving all of the stakeholder, stakeholder feedback for the past year. So until we see what the final rule looks like, there's no way to know exactly what will make it into the final rule from the proposed rule. But you know, the proposed rules would require cross-examination, they require the university to give meaningful notice and to give the parties access to all of the evidence in their cases. You know, all of these things that fire and other due process advocates have been asking for for years now. 
Um, and I think that they would go a long way towards making these processes more fair. So the response in the media and by, you know, in the public on some college campuses um, has been really negative. And if you just were to Google, um, you know, Betsy DeVos, Title IX regulations, what you would see is a host of articles saying that she wants to roll back protections for survivors, that these rules are going to re-traumatize victims, um, and that she is favoring, you know, alleged rapists over over the safety of students on campus. How how would you respond to that? I mean, the idea that they roll back protections is just, it's simply not true. I mean, not having a hearing, not allowing the accused person to see the evidence, those are not protections, right? I mean, it, it protects no one to have a process that's unfair and unreliable. Um, right. And so, you know, I think that whole framework is just absurd, frankly. Right. And as you pointed out in this conversation, due process uh, protects everybody. It protects the accuser and it protects the accused. And so really, this is something everybody should be celebrating, in my view. But we do see a lot of pushback. What do you think will happen when the regulations come down? I think there's going to be litigation, quite frankly. I have a feeling there are groups that already have their complaints drawn up, um, you know, challenging these. I suspect we're going to see, uh, you know, motions to enjoin all or part of them probably brought in jurisdictions that, that uh, you know, are likely to be favorable to that kind of claim. Um, and I think we'll go from there. Interesting. Well, when they do come down, maybe we can talk to you again um, to sort of analyze what's happening. But for today, that about does it. Um, we hope that our listeners learned something new from this conversation. And um, if anyone is interested in learning more about sexual assault and due process on campus, they can take a look at um, Samantha's website, which is thefire.org. Is that right? Yep. Thefire.org. Um, and please also check out IWF's January policy focus on this topic, which you can find on our website, which is IWF.org. If you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, we would love it if you would take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. And please share this episode on social media. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, you're in control. I think, you think, she thinks.